So the first reading tonight <coughs> comes from 1 Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were, were with Jonathan at Gebeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to, Saul, to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their enemy was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some, Hebrew, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You should not, should not have kept the command. You, sorry, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah with ben, uh, in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Well, do you want to be a success? Well, that's a stupid question, isn't it? Everyone wants to be successful or at least to feel successful. But what is success? How would you know if you are a successful person? It really depends who you ask, doesn't it? The world will tell you one thing about what success is. Your parents might tell you another. Your teachers, another. Your boss, another. It all depends who you ask. I wonder, though, what would happen if you asked God? How does God define success? What's success and what's failure? If you asked God's people, then 
the reign of King Saul, King Saul himself was a great success. They'd rejected God. They wanted the king to lead them and win their battles for them. And gee, Saul did it. Have a look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, there's a summary, verse 47. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Abanites, Edom, the kings of Zobar, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. Saul was a great success because success was defeating their enemies. But what does God think? What does he think success is and what does he rate Saul? Well, out of all those battles, and there must have been like a hundred, God chooses two to record here for us, to show us what he thinks success is. You see his expectations in chapter 15, verse 1. 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent you, sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the sound of the words of the Lord. You're the king that God appointed, and God expects you to listen and obey his words. That's the criteria for success. Well, chapter 13. Saul has had a specific command back in chapter 10. When God's Spirit comes on you, destroy the Philistine outpost. Then go to Gilgal and wait for me seven days and I'll come and offer the sacrifices. Sure enough, the God's Spirit came on Saul, but it's a year later chapter 13, and he has not attacked the Philistine outpost. Well, his son gets tired of waiting for the old man, and so chapter 13, verse 3, he does it himself. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Saul, of course, is happy enough to take the credit. Verse 4, all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And then the exact thing that Saul was afraid of, I think, happened. The Philistines are furious. They gather their troops and they have a great advantage. Verse 2, Saul's got 3,000. Verse 5, the Philistines, they got 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and infantry as many as the sand on the seashore. You know where to lay your bets in this one. And the Israelites can see it, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in the caves and the thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. I don't know anything about warfare, but I reckon I'd be doing this too. They're afraid and they find a cave to hide in. And probably Saul wanted to do exactly the same thing, except he was the What's he to do now? Well, he was told to wait, and so he waited. Day one, day two, day six, day seven. He's to wait for Samuel to turn up, offer the sacrifices, and tell him what to do. But each day, he has less and less men. Each day, he's got less and less chance of any chance 
in the battle? How is he supposed to succeed with a few hundred men against the Philistines? He waited the seven days, verse 8, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. And Saul's men began or continued to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. What do you think? What would you have done? Day after day, he has less and less chance of winning. There's no way of knowing where Samuel is. He hasn't got a mobile phone. He can't track him on Google Maps. He doesn't know whether he's coming at all. He waits, but then he loses patience. And it seems wise, don't you think? He needs to act. That's what leaders do. The longer he waits, the less men he will have. People are relying on him and he's got to take some sort of action. Surely it's the wise course for a leader. I think we agree with what he says in verse 12, don't we? He felt compelled. What other choice did he have? Now you and I have never led an army. We've never been outnumbered like this. But I think as Christians we know what it's like to be pressured, to be afraid, and think we have no other choice than to disobey God. Sometimes we feel pressured to lie or to cheat or to go along with those who are, whether it's at school or at work. How else am I going to keep my job and pay the mortgage, we think? Or we feel pressured not to speak up about being a Christian, not to speak up in the discussion that you actually believe in Jesus. How else am I going to fit in and keep my friendships? Or we feel pressured to change our message and what we say, what we believe about sexuality, for example. How else will we be accepted in our society? How else will we be relevant? The wise thing, surely, is to give in. And it does seem wise when we give in and we feel guilty, but it's successful and we avoid conflict and we fit in. Well, what does God think? Verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. The same words that God said to Adam, the same words that God said to Cain. What have you done? Well, Saul replies, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought now the Philistines will come against me and I haven't sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. What choice did I have? Says Saul. You acted foolishly, says Samuel. You thought it was wise. We thought it was wise, I think. But you acted foolishly. Why? You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the Bible. And so by definition, to disobey God, even if it seems wise, is foolish. For God knows what is best, and to treat him as God, as king, is wise. By definition, even if it seems that there's no other choice. But the rest of the battle actually shows that there was another choice, that God could be trusted and that he can save with few. You see, Saul has a son and a gung-ho son, as we saw, and a son who trusts God. The situation got worse. Verse 15, Samuel left. Verse 17, they started raiding them. Verse 19, you learn the Israelites don't have any weapons. And so Saul stayed put. That's the wise thing to do. How could he possibly attack? But Jonathan decides to attack with just him and his armor bearer. Why? This extraordinary verse, verse 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That is the very thing his father did not believe. So what choice did he? But Jonathan believes it and attacks with just two of them. Well, is it true? The two of them attack and they kill 20. That's impressive, two, 20. But what use is it against an army of thousands? Well, verse 15, then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. At last, Saul then rouses himself. The deserters come back. And verse 23, the Lord rescued Israel that day. Do you see? The Lord can save by many or by few, and Jonathan trusted it, and he obeyed. And the Lord rescued his people. Is it wise to give in and to disobey God so that you fit in when it seems like you have no choice? Is that the wise thing to do? No, it is foolish. Because by definition, it is foolish to disobey the God of the universe. And what's more, if you can't see that there is any other choice that the consequences for you are simply not worth it to disobey God. God can work things in extraordinary ways that you can't imagine. He might even work through bad consequences that you are trying to avoid. So what will you do in those situations where you think you have no choice but to give in, to give in to peer pressure, to give in to the pressure from the boss? Will you trust God and obey him? Or will you refuse to trust him and disobey him? Well, unfortunately, that wasn't the only time that Saul disobeyed. Chapter 15. Okay. So now we move along to chapter 15 and we start at verse 1 and I'm going to read to the end of verse 3 and then I'm going to start again at verse 7 and read to 26 and it's on page 295. 
Okay, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Verse 7. Then Paul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people, but totally dest- he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. When the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you that the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag the king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord 
and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. What does God say is success, especially for his king? It's obedience. I am the one the Lord sent you to anoint you king over people. Now listen now to the message from the Lord. And what a message it is. Have a look at verse 2 again. The specific command. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Whoa. That is a heavy command. It doesn't say how Saul reacted, how he felt about it, but we know how we feel about it, don't we? How could a good God command his king and his people to totally destroy an innocent people? We have a word for this. It's genocide but we need to see here that God is not random he is not malicious he is not some Greek God who's having a bad day and decides to completely wipe out a group of people the Amalekites are not innocent they were related to the Israelites and when the Israelites were going past on the way to the promised land they didn't help them, they attacked them And God said they would be punished. That was centuries earlier, yes. But they haven't changed. God says in verse 18, they are a wicked people. Agag, according to Samuel, at the end of the chapter, when he gets executed, is a nasty piece of work and gets exactly what he deserves. These are not an innocent people. God is punishing wickedness. Yes, the wheels of his justice are turning slowly, but they do fall, and this is the day they fell. That was the day of justice for the Amalekites, and one day there will be a justice for everyone. That is the truth. That is what God is like. That is what human beings deserve. It is a hard teaching. Saul obeys. Sort of. He's successful, isn't he? He attacks the Amalekites and wins the battle and kills most of them. Except, verse 8, He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Now these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Why do you think they did it that way? Do you need to be told? Why did they destroy the weak stuff, the worthless stuff, but keep the good animals and keep the king who they could put up for ransom. Well, you don't need to be told, do you? It's obvious. 
Saul and the people are like Eli's sons. They're like Samuel's sons. They're like many leaders. They're greedy. And Saul, in fact, is not just greedy. He was afraid of the enemy in chapter 13. And in this chapter, in this event, he's afraid of the people. He admits it in verse 24. They wanted the plunder and he, the king, was too afraid to take it off them. Leaders can be greedy and afraid. And here's the great dilemma of what you do about leadership, isn't it? Political leadership in your nation and leadership in the church. You know that leaders can be greedy and so you want them to be accountable. That's why democracy is so good. You want them to be afraid of being voted out if they're greedy. But you also want leaders to make hard decisions. You want leaders who will actually go against what everyone else wants. You want leaders who will do something that is completely unpopular in the nation and in the church who are not afraid of being voted out. That's why democracy is so bad. So what do you do? I think that's why we don't have democracy in the church. Though it's a really good thing, the best system we've got in the nation. Have a chat about that later on, if you like. Well, Saul failed. He was greedy and afraid. How does God respond? Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Do you see that there? The Lord so cares about his plans, so cares about his people, he so cares about being obeyed that he is grieved when we disobey him. He grieves when we disobey him. Samuel goes to confront Saul. He has trouble finding him for a while because he's been busy setting up monuments to himself. Not a very good sign. But when he gets to Saul, Saul is not worried. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel very wittily says, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? There shouldn't be any sound. Saul's quick with an answer. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Saul's quick, isn't he? I really think that he's totally deceived here. He really thinks that he has obeyed the Lord. Sin is like that. It deceives us and we think we're doing the right thing. And he's got a ready defense so that he is protected. Who was it who brought the best of the sheep and the cattle? It was Saul and the soldiers. But what does he say? Verse 15 the soldiers spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. And of course, why did they do it? Well, it was for a very good cause. It was to sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
And we, you noticed, put me in the best picture, we totally destroyed the rest. I think it's supposed to be funny, the way that it's told. We are supposed to laugh at Saul and think, you idiot. Do you really think God can't see through you? But when you point your finger at Saul, there's three fingers pointing back at you, at us. Our sin is this deceitful, isn't it? We disobey God and we don't even realize it. Even when someone points it out to us, we are very slow to realize it and we want to push back. Just like Saul, we focus on the things we are obeying and think that somehow makes up for disobeying the other bits. Whenever we can, we blame other people. They were doing it and I was just caught up with them. And if you can wrangle it like Saul, you could say, yes, I was only cheating a little bit so I'd give, have more money to give to the Lord. You wrangle it so that it was really to honour the Lord. Or more simply, yes, I'm disobeying, but look how involved I am at church. Look how much money I'm giving to church. Look how much I'm serving and caring for other people. As if that would make any difference to God, but we protect ourselves, we think. Samuel said to Saul, Stop! Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He reminds him of how the Lord appointed him as king from nothing. He reminds him of the command of what he was supposed to do. Verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Verse 23, arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Do you see what he's saying there? Divination is to seek out the dead to get advice about the future and to simply disobey one of God's commands. What he wants you to do is just as bad. What's idolatry? It's to bow down and worship and pray to a lifeless, stupid statue and to disobey one of the Lord's commands is as bad as that. It's to reject the word of God, and to reject the word of God is to reject God himself. So I simply want to ask you the question, which command of God that you know are you disobeying at the moment? in your thoughts, in your actions, in the way you treat other people at work, in your family, in your personal life that no one else knows about. Which command is it? And what are you going to do about it? You see, if you ask the people, Saul was a great success for he won the battles, even here. He won the battles. But if you asked God, he was a complete failure. For he failed at the one thing that actually matters. He did not obey God. And so God rejected him as king. 
In chapter 13, he's told that he's lost the kingdom, no dynasty for you. In chapter 15, his own kingship is over. Back at the beginning of chapter 13, we're told that his reign was 42 years, but actually in the original manuscript, it doesn't have the word 40. Someone's added that in because clearly he was on the throne for 42 years, but it seems clear with these two battles in the first two years, his reign was over. He was a lame duck. As far as God was concerned, he was really not the king any longer, for he disobeyed. Success is to obey God. Failure is to disobey God. To be honest, uh, there are days when I feel like a success. My task was to hang a picture on the wall, perhaps say something simple, and I actually measure it and get it in the right spot and it is still there at the end of the day. It hasn't fallen to the ground. I feel like a success. There are some more significant things that I do and I feel successful. But do I value what is really success? To obey God's word. More often, to be honest, I feel like a failure. Maybe it's a stage of life thing. You think you'll achieve more when you're younger and when you get to midlife, you haven't got there and so you feel like a failure. This week in particular, there was something that I felt a failure about that I couldn't do. As I was sharing this with someone else, they very helpfully pointed out to me, you seem to really care about being a failure in this. You can't do it. Do you care that much when you disobey God? When you fail in that way? Why not? In the end... If failure is actually disobeying God and God's word, then let me be honest with you. You are a failure through and through, just as much as I am. And no matter how much we try and protect ourselves and justify ourselves and pretend that God doesn't know, he does. And there is some very good news in this passage for people like us. For the Lord rejected Saul as king and said that he would seek out a better king. That was bad news for Saul, but very good news for us. The better king was David, a king from his own heart, his own choosing. But even David, you know the story, was a greedy king and disobeyed God's word. But there is a better king, isn't there? A son who trusted and obeyed God. He was under so much pressure. He learned obedience, though, the Lord Jesus. For in that point where everyone deserted him, where his numbers were so, so just himself, and he faced such an enemy, he trusted God, chose obedience, and actually gave the sacrifice that deals with our failure. And so we don't need to pretend. We don't need to protect. We don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to do a Saul with our failure. We can admit it. 
and rejoice in Jesus' success. How good is that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for telling us the truth that each one of us here tonight is a failure in the one thing that matters, obeying you. Grant us the humility to admit that. Grant us the honesty to identify that thing at this time that we need to admit and turn from. But Father, we thank you so much that there is a better king than Saul, a better king than David, who trusted and obeyed you and so gave the sacrifice that deals with our failure. We praise you for his success. We pray in his name.